Welcome to Our Parents Did What? A Tour of the Parenting Perils of Yesteryear. I'm Diane Aragona. And I'm your co-host, Jen Tierney. Join us as we travel back in time to take a look at the sometimes unbelievable history of parenting. Hey, Diane. Hi, Jen. What's happening? Oh, so many things. So, so many things. It's always so many things. It's never just one thing. It's true. I'm trying to think of like a good thing that's going on right now just to sort of like tell you about what's good. <laughs> what is good in 2020? Oh, you know what? I just out of the corner of my eye saw something. So in my move, I moved this random old like 1960s style singer sewing machine and I've found a way to turn it into art. So now when I record, I get to see this beautiful like old antique singer machine that I've now, now planted like succulents into. So that's good. How cool. Oh, you have to send me a picture. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So it has nothing to do with momming, which is the best. I was going to say, not everything has to do with momming. That's right. Sometimes you need a good thing in your life that's just like devoid of children. Just yes, absolutely. It's so funny that you said that because I just listened. I was on a walk yesterday and I just listened to our friend Whitney from How She Moms. She did an mm. episode, her, la I think her latest episode on um, like how to... Um, it's like self-care? Yeah, the self-care yeah. one. Did you listen mm -hmm. to that one? I haven't listened to it yet, but it's in my queue. It was so good and like it gave me great ideas. Some of the stuff I, had, I already knew, but it also just like gave you permission mm -hmm. to just like do stuff for yourself. So Whitney, thank you. It was a great episode. Um, if you haven't listened, you should definitely listen to How She Moms. But I, it was like, it, it had some great ideas, but it also just had other moms being like, it's totally okay to take time for yourself. That's right. It is. It's important. Yes. All right. Well, speaking of taking care of yourself... Tell me about your mom moment where you probably didn't take care of yourself. <laughs> okay. Okay, I will go first. Mine is is sort of silly and and let's just get into it. So I, when I was pregnant, when I was like nine months pregnant, I went and got myself a car wash because I was like, I don't know when I'm going to be getting in my car again. You know, I'm maternity leave and stuff. And like, I just want to have like a nice clean car. So Fast forward to now when my daughter is 18 months old and that was the last car wash. <laughs> so as you know, Jen, when I was breastfeeding, well, I'm still breastfeeding, but when I was breastfeeding and really on the go and like pumping all the time, I would pump while I was driving a lot because I drive to a lot of my students' houses to teach. So I was like constantly pumping and driving and multitasking. So inevitably breast milk got all over my car. <laughs> yep. And that stuff does not come off easily. <laughs> no, time to get your car detail. <laughs> oh my God, it was everywhere. And so like, it's been disgusting. And like, obviously I'll like take like household cleaner to it every so often, like real yeah. quick, but you never do like a good job. And I've got to admit, I let it get like pretty gross. And I just, then I wasn't in my car for six months because of COVID. Uh -huh. So finally yesterday... I had a break in my lessons and I had someone watching the baby and I took my car to the car wash and in my head before I gave them, you know, before I left my car with them to go through the car wash, I had, I said, I am so sorry. You are going to have to clean breast milk off of everything. <laughs> like old dried breast milk, which I've tried to get off. 
But they must have some type of magical cleaner because it was perfectly beautiful when I got it back. Oh, that's great. Yes. So sorry if that was kind of a disgusting mom moment. No. So while you were talking, you reminded me of a very, 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 very gross mom moment. But I think it's probably actually too gross to share. Oh, no. Can you share it? Not on the air with me later. <laughs> I totally can. Great. Uh, so the mom moment I am going to share, which is not disgusting. The other one had poop in it. So like is just oh, no. too disgusting. So this one doesn't have poop in it. So this one's very sweet. In a previous episode, I, I talked about how Liam was going to uh, speech therapy and, you know, we're trying to get him using more words and more gestures and things. And this week... He started doing a new gesture that's just so sweet. And the first, like, time or two he did it, I wasn't sure what he was doing. Okay. (laughs) And then when I realized what it was, it, like, melted my little heart. So he's been tapping his fingers together for more, but he's been doing that for months and months and months. So he taps his fingers together for more, and then he touched his chest twice, Hmm. which is, please. Oh, no. Stop. (laughs) so sweet so he he goes more more please and he taps his little chest and i'm just like oh my god i can't my <laughs> little heart cute. just like exploded i know it's just so sweet so i mean he basically only does it to ask for water or food right but that, that's kind <laughs> he, like, of all he needs toddles into point. the kitchen and just more more please <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> so now like that's what he does all the time and it's just every time it does it it just makes me smile so much that's so sweet it sounds like he's making really good progress he is he still doesn't have any extra words but he's got lots more gestures and he's definitely like tonight at dinner he was very clearly we we had chinese food and he was very clearly asking for duck sauce to dip in (laughs) and i knew that's what he was asking for and i was specifically choosing to ignore him because i didn't want to give him the duck sauce (laughs) I knew it would just become a huge mess. Yeah. But I knew that's what he wanted. So he's become very good at communicating. Oh, that's great, though. Eventually, I relented and he got the duck sauce. So everyone will be glad to know. Kids kids are going to get messy. I have to keep reminding myself that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yep. It's true. So, yeah, when he was done, he, like, put his hands up and they were all sticky. And he was, like, you know, had this look on his face like, Mom, my hands are all sticky. Help. You were like, hey, that's what happens when you get the duck sauce. Yeah, this is what I was trying to prevent, kid. (laughs) All right, so I'm now going to tell you a story that is not quite so sweet. Oh, no. (laughs) I mean, it has its moments, but mostly it's, it's quite... It's quite upsetting. So, you know, I'm good for these. I really love the, I really love the very, very, like, powerfully upsetting stories. So You do. You always do this to me. I know. I'm sorry. Um, I'm going to tell you today about the Dion quintuplets. Have you heard of them? Never. Get ready, Diane. It is a roller coaster. (laughs) Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. At the end of the episode, I'll tell you what the title of it's going to (laughs) be. Oh, boy. Okay. All right. So the Dion quintuplets, they were born May 28th in 1934 in Ontario, Canada. Their parents were not necessarily poor, but they weren't like super rich. They were a farming family. They spoke French. The parents' names were Oliva, 
Oliva, that's the husband, and then Elzir. Uh, oh, so that's so pretty. Oliva and Elzir Dion. And before the quintuplets were born, they had five children. Actually, sorry, they had six, but one of them died of pneumonia. Oh. I know, it's sad. So they had five children, then the quintuplets came. So Elzir thought perhaps she was having twins. And then... Oh, no. <laughs> the night her babies were born, she, she like, went into shock. She was so... She was so freaked out <laughs> that she had had five children no. all at once. Um, so she almost died, but she did not. She she survived the birth, but like just barely. And fun fact, they went on to have three more children after the quintuplets. <gasps> oh my god! So how uh, many is that total? So counting the one who passed of pneumonia, that's fourteen children. <sighs> so yeah, did a lot of lot of babies. Um, wow, that's so, a lot of babies. <laughs> a lot of babies. So the 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 girls in order were Yvonne, Annette, Cecile, Emily, and Marie, and they were born two months premature. And the reason why they are notable is because they are the first known quintuplets to survive infancy. Wow. So, and they, they were identical quintuplets. Um, and so, so in 1934, this is like the middle of the Great Depression. And so it was sort of like a weird time to like have five babies. You know? Yeah. It's like not a great, not a great moment. So the attending doctor during the birth, so there were, there were three people there other than the two parents. There was Dr. Alan Roy Defoe and then two midwives whose names are written down somewhere, but I didn't write them down myself. And the babies were not all individually weighed. <laughs> so I just have their combined weight, oh. which was 13 pounds, six ounces. So tiny. So tiny. They were very, very tiny. And there's a lot of really interesting details about like the first few days of their birth. Like all they had was this little wicker basket and some heated blankets to put them all in. So all the babies were in this basket all together, like puppies, you know. That actually sounds kind of cute. <laughs> It wasn't a good luck. There are some pictures oh, of never mind. the babies, like their first, the, like right after, like two hours after they were born, there's a picture of them laid down next to their mother in the bed. And she looks like death. And the five babies are like teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh my God. So, but like as soon as they were born, like within hours, there was press there because it was like, somebody had five babies. You know? Right. Like, huge so news. It was just like, it was huge news. So a few days after they were born, the family was approached by Chicago's Century of Progress exhibition. So sort of like the World's Fair, right? Okay. And they wanted to do an attraction featuring the five babies because as you know, at this time, incubator babies were a huge thing. Yes, yes, we've talked about this. <laughs> That's right. And so, and in fact, many hospitals gifted the families incubators when the babies were born to help them survive. So like, they were getting all of this attention from people because they had had five babies and everybody was like, we want the five babies to live. So they were like sending them all this stuff. They got letters from all over the, all over North America and Europe from people giving them advice on what to do and like there's all kinds of stuff for these people. Whoa. So because it was unclear whether or not these babies were going to survive, you know, and also if they did survive, could these people afford to care for them? So Dr. Defoe and the Dion's family priest persuaded them, persuaded Oliva 
to sign over the babies to the Chicago Century of Progress. Oh, no. Specifically because they were like, well, they're going to have all these incubators and they'll have a team of people to care for them. And, you know, like like the Coney Island incubator babies. And they were like, this is how they'll survive is, you know, give them give them to these people, sign over their custody and they'll be taken care of. But within a few days, Oliva regretted this decision and Elzir had not signed anything. So they were like, well, we we didn't both sign it. So this contract is null and void. But the Chicago Century in Progress were like, no, you signed this contract. We own your babies. So as a way to save the babies, <laughs> Oliva and Elzir signed the custody of their babies over to the Red Cross. Oh. And the Red Cross, in exchange for custody of the babies, would provide all medical care to the babies for the first two years then the custody would be returned to the parents after two years so the red cross takes custody of the babies in 1935 so um a year later oliva and elzir who are like hugely famous now like they're, they're like the parents of the babies right like, like they were actually what's the word when you like appear on a Build. They were billed as the parents of the world famous babies. Um, <laughs> wow. And so they toured America in vaudevillian acts and did like appearances as these people who produced five babies. Just them, though, because the Red Cross had the babies. Because the Red Cross had the babies. And the babies were only a year old, you know, and they were still like, it was it was unclear whether or not they were all going to survive. And right. so they were in this, you know, facility. So we'll get into the facility in a minute. But during this time, while the parents were away, the Canadian premier used this as an opportunity to say, we need to save these girls from exploitation. So he passed the Dion Quintuplets Act in 1935 and gained guardianship. The Canadian government gained guardianship for the girls until they turned 18. What? I know. <laughs> So it went from the World's Fair type thing to the Red Cross to now the government? The government of Canada. So the Board of Guardians, it was like a board of directors, but it was called the Board of Guardians, was made up of Oliva, Dr. Defoe, a man named Joseph Vallon, and the Minister of Welfare, David Kroll. But Oliva basically never attended these meetings because he was always outvoted by the other three. So he was just eventually like, it's pointless for me to go to these things. They're always going to outvote me. They don't care about the girls. They don't want me to have custody. I'm just going to, I'm not going to go anymore. So like they were really like weirdly estranged from their birth family. The Canadian government at the same time realizes how incredibly lucrative these babies are and how much interest there is in them. So the Canadian government in the late 30s <laughs> built an entire tourist industry around these girls. But I thought that the whole point was so that they wouldn't be exploited. <laughs> yes, Diane, you heard that right. <laughs> Jeez, come on, man. Just, I know. It's just, it just gets worse. Just wait. All right. So across from the family farm, so literally across the street from the family farm, the Defoe Hospital and Nursery was built in 1934. And the girls moved there September 21st, 1934, when they were just four months old. 
So they, like, the Red Cross raised money for this hospital, built it in, like, a few months, moved the girls in. And it was a, like, a nursery. It was a hospital. It was, you know, like, it was all the things. And they lived there until they were nine. They very rarely left, unless they were doing, like, some sort of appearance or, or whatever. Other than that, like, they were there all the time. And so the way that this facility worked was there there were, like, mm, like nine rooms, I guess, like different different rooms inside for the kids to like play in or eat in or go to sleep in or whatever. And then to the side of the building, there was a outdoor play space. And around the perimeter of the outdoor play space was a viewing platform. I knew you were going to say this. <laughs> and so <laughs> it was open for public viewing three times a day, every day, and it had one-way glass all the way around. <gasps> so the girls would go into play for, like, 30 minutes to an hour at a time in this, like, outdoor play space, and people would come to watch them play. This is like the Truman Show. I know. It's really creepy. The staff of this facility included three nurses, three police officers, two maids, and a housekeeper. And this was like an a constantly changing like a rotation of people because it was so upsetting to people that like no nurse lasted longer than like three years because they were just like I can't, I can't. this is and and they were told specifically don't get attached to these girls don't have like familiar relationships with them because they were just on these shifts and they would just like you know swap out and they just yeah they were encouraged not to be because this was also the time of like don't love children too much right yeah yeah <laughs> you know like it's just ugh. this story has a lot of like overlap with things we've talked about before it's really interesting oh the other thing that's really nice about this is that the whole facility was surrounded by seven foot tall barbed wire fencing whoa mm -hmm. yeah so it was pretty it's pretty intense all right so they had a really rigid daily schedule as you can imagine, these five girls. How old were they at this point? They were there till they were nine? They were there till they were nine. So they were essentially like on display for like seven or eight years. <sighs> and so every morning at 6.30 a.m. they woke up and they had a glass of orange juice and cod liver oil. Like they just, it was like this regimented crazy, like they went and had breakfast at 7 a.m. And they went and they did prayers at 7.30 and then they played for an hour. And then at 9 a.m. every day they had their morning inspection with Dr. Defoe. <laughs> Like, oh. just, ugh. they wrote down everything about these girls, their weight, their height, any illnesses they had, any like constant experiments and tests and all kinds of things on these kids. They were trying to determine whether or not they were identical or fraternal. They all had um, fused second and third toes. So they, you know, they were just constantly testing these girls. It was awful. Oh, these poor kids. I know. It was just really, ugh, really nuts. So. Every day they had dinner at exactly 6 p.m. and bedtime was every night at 7. So let me read you this little quote from an article I had read because it kind of summarizes life inside of this facility really well. Uh, Routine was king. Mornings began at 6.30 a.m. with orange juice and cod liver oil. The nurses, a rotating cast who made up a composite mother, according to the Dion quintuplets, were instructed not to show her favoritism or affection. Discipline, though delivered with a smile, was absolute. If the girls developed the habit of putting their hands inside their diapers when they slept, for example, their pajama arms would be tied to the crib bars. <gasps> so 
That's where they lived. And interestingly, Diane, when asked as adults about this time in their lives, they admitted that this was somehow the happiest and least complicated time of their lives. Oh, that's even sadder. I know. It's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, or it's like they didn't know anything else. Yeah, they just didn't know anything else. This was their lives. So they had approximately 3,000 people per day come to view them in the period of time that they were on view. So from 1936 to 1943, over 3 million people came to see them. That is so many people. And they had no idea. Yeah, they didn't know. Well, I mean, they knew because as they got older, they were like, there's got to be people out there watching us. But it was it was soundproof. Like they couldn't hear anything. They didn't, you know, nobody said to them, like, you're being watched. Right. But they were like, we knew. <laughs> so <laughs> Oliver, let's not forget about him. He ran a souvenir shop across the street. Are you kidding? And the area became known as Quintland. <laughs> oh, my God. I know. So here's a real, a real doozy. One of the most popular souvenirs from this time and in this area was he would put out in bins inside the shop rocks from the area and give them to people for free. And... He said that the rocks increased fertility and he had to refill the bins daily. No. <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> if it weren't real life, I would love this movie because it's like, it's so ridiculous. It's very ridiculous. <laughs> oh, all right. So it turns out that in that period of time, those like nine years, the quintuplets brought in over $50 million in tourist revenue to Ontario. So they were very, they're big bucks. <laughs> Lucrative children. They were a bigger tourist attraction than Niagara Falls. <laughs> so it's crazy. Before all of the money came in, there had been a trust fund established for the girls to put all this money into. But don't you know, most of that money was taken. Of course. <laughs> by one person or another, for one reason or another, like to build the facility. The parents used a lot of the money to build their own beautiful, sprawling, lavish mansion. Like it just like, you know, they ended up with very little of that money themselves. Oh, God. Oh, before we move on, famous visitors of the quintuplets included Clark Gable, James Stewart, Betty Davis, James Cagney, Mae West, and Amelia Earhart. My God. <laughs> Everybody loved them. This is insane. But like, did people go excited and curious and then leave feeling like extremely dismayed and upset? Or did they leave like, this was the coolest thing ever. What a great vacation. I mean, it was like, it was like going to see a freak show. Like it was like a curiosity and an oddity. And they just, yeah, it was real wacky. So, so the girls' images and voices and like all sorts of different things were used in marketing like crazy. So they they marketed everything as little children. They would be dressed up identically to promote things like caro corn syrup, <laughs> Quaker oats, Heinz ketchup, no, Lifesavers candy, <laughs> palm olive soap, and Lysol. 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 So like they just their pictures were on everything. They even starred in three Hollywood films, Diane. How? 
They just shipped him down to Hollywood and put him in front of a camera. Oh my god. Like they were always like the main characters of the story, but the story always had adult actors that actually spoke and did things, but like the movie would be about them, but they would just be like in shots. They wouldn't actually do anything. <laughs> there have to be are there clips of these movies? Oh yeah, they're real movies. Oh, you can go watch I, them. I have this is yeah. fascinating. I, I forgot to write down like what they were called. In 1939, so the girls were five, five years old, Dr. Defoe resigned as guardian, and Oliva was finally able to reunite the family. So in 1942 is when they all, all of the Dion's moved into the nursery facility. Oh. So in 1943, so that was when the girls were nine. And that's when the viewings ended. So basically the the family, you know, was sort of reunited and they built this giant, huge, beautiful, like 20 bedroom mansion across the street where the farm was and moved the whole family back over there. And the nursery was then converted into a Catholic school for the girls to go to and some other local kids. That's actually really cool. Life kind of moved on, right? They were able to reuse these facilities and life became a little bit more like normal. But Diane, oh my gosh, everything had been so profoundly weird for the previous nine years that they just never were able to like be normal. Oh, They always lived and operated as a unit. Like those five girls were like a unit of five. And so within the larger family, they were always treated as like one. They were not treated as like individual kids. So they had a lot of, I don't know, there were just a lot of conflicts and problems in that house. And there are a lot of different books on them. There's a a book called The Miracle and Tragedy of the Dion Quintuplets by Sarah Miller, which I really want to read, which has a lot of information and detail about their time between 9 and 18 while they lived with their parents. But what we know from them is that, or from from the girls and the stories that they told once they were adults, was that they were physically abused by their mother and they were sexually abused by their father. So it was just like a bad time. Like they just had a bad time everywhere they went. While they lived with their family from 1942 to 1952 they still made lots of appearances did lots of performances they were always made to dress identically always which is just the worst and the money they didn't know that they had a trust fund so the money just got spent by like their parents but isn't the point of a trust fund so that nobody can have have the rules changed i don't know i'm not sure I have a feeling that it was all very much not okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but that that people were just sort of like, well, we'll just do this because whatever. We, we have zero scruples. All right, so let's talk a little bit about their adult lives. So Emily, um, whose name I'm definitely pronouncing wrong because it's French and it has an accent in it, but I, <laughs> I don't speak French, so I can't do it. But it looks like Emily... She became a nun, as did one of the other sisters, I believe. But but so Emily became a nun, and during her older teenage years, it was discovered that she had epilepsy. And while she was at the convent, she was 20 years old, and she had a seizure, and she died, which is very sad. Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. So, like, this story is, like, I mean, it's fascinating, but like it's it's just like it's getting worse and worse. I know. It's just yeah, it, 
Ugh. So, so she, so she dies, and the four surviving sisters are grieving and like beside themselves, but were forced to pose next to her open casket for like an article about the death of the first Dion quintuplet. No. Yeah, it just like the world didn't care about these ladies. It's just ugh. So it's like like they didn't even see them as like humans. They were just no, a commodity. They were it was just it just insane. So then Marie, who I believe is she the youngest? I think she was the youngest of the five. Emily was the second to youngest and then Maria was the youngest. So Marie died in nineteen seventy after right after she had been divorced and then she lost custody of her children due to depression and she was so they never determined like a cause of death but she was found in bed with medicine bottles around her so i know very sad all right so at this point half of the trust fund is gone these women there are three of them left there's you know not a lot of money left for them at this point some of them had gotten married. Some of them had children. And Cecile, who was the, the third oldest, so the third one, right in the middle, her oldest son decides that he's going to help them get money from the Canadian government that they believe that they were owed because of all the money they made the government, you know, while they were on display and owned by the government. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So he started this, like, big campaign to pressure the government to give them money. I believe at this point, when they finally settled, it, they settled for $4 million. And I believe only two of the siblings were left at that point. But Cecile's son took her portion of the money and disappeared. No. She's 85 years old, Diane. And now... In the most horrible, ironic turn of events, she is now again the ward of Canada as she lives in a government-owned nursing facility. My jaw is just, like, on the floor. I just can't. So I wanted to, I wanted to read one last thing. Let's see if I can find it. The surviving quintuplets, the, the three surviving ones back in, like, the late 90s wrote... A letter. It says, in 1997, the three surviving sisters wrote an open letter to the parents of the McCoffey septuplets, warning against allowing too much publicity for the children. The letter read, Dear Bobby and Kenny, if we emerge momentarily from the privacy we have sought all our adult lives, it is only to send a message to the McCoffey family. We three would like to, you to know we feel a natural affinity and tenderness for your children. We hope your children receive more respect than we did. Their fate should be no different from that of other children. Multiple births should not be confused with entertainment, nor should they be an opportunity to sell products. Our lives have been ruined by the exploitation we suffered at the hands of the government of Ontario, our place of birth. We were displayed as a curiosity three times a day from millions of tourists. To this day, we receive letters from all over the world. To all those who have expressed their support in light of the abuse we have endured, we say thank you. And to those who would seek to exploit the growing fame of these children, we say beware. We sincerely hope a lesson will be learned from examining how our lives will forever were forever altered by our childhood experience. 
If this letter changes the course of events for these newborns, then perhaps our lives will have served a higher purpose. Sincerely, Annette, Cecile, and Yvonne. Oh my god. I know. (laughs) So, I don't know. I have so many feelings and thoughts about these women, and I even feel kind of bad doing an episode on them, because I feel like I'm in some way invading their privacy by telling this story. But I just... I have not yet come across a story like this, which, no. which has hit me so much and made me go, how how could so many people fail these children one after another, after another, after another, after another? Like just, they did not catch one single break ever. And now remind me, are, are, are any of them still alive? Yes. So... So Annette and Cecile are still alive. Okay. Um, Yvonne died in 2001 at age 67. Marie died when she was 35. And Emily died at 20. So, yeah. Um, one, one of them became a librarian. One, I believe, became a nurse. Like, they went and lived, like, pretty normal lives as adults. And they all, all of the surviving ones into adulthood, like, they always stayed very close together. They, they often lived together. None of their marriages ever worked out because, like, they just – they were so connected to one another that they really had trouble spending time with other people, you know? Yeah. Because they had always depended on one another because nobody else in their childhood, like, no one was ever allowed to just be affectionate with them. So all of their affection came from one another. And so they just really were, like, a unit their whole lives. And people were just awful to them. I know that it's it's not nearly as horrible and it's different, but it it even makes me think of how we treat celebrity children, mm-hmm. like paparazzi following them around and yeah. like nothing is private. Mm-hmm. There was an article in the Washington Post. So the, the title of this episode is going to be called The Baby Zoo. <laughs> oh, oh, that term. I know. So at the end of this article in the Washington Post, there's a uh, there's a quote from who is this? Oh, it's Sarah Miller who did the the book that we want to read. Okay. Um. So Miller says, "I don't think we would necessarily have another baby zoo, but in the age of Instagram kidfluencers, you could wind up kicking a different snowball down a similar hill." Oof. That just like gave me a weird bad chill. Yeah. I know. I know. So, I mean, like, I really, as I was reading the story, I was like, but then their parents are going to save them, right? Their parents saved them. Yes. Wait. Oh, my God. (laughs) It just, it just never gets better. It's awful. So, yeah, I, I think go find this book. Go look at pictures of these kids. Really interesting. Just all the content that was created about them back before content creation and big data was a thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's really astonishing. And I think, like, what was interesting about it to me was that I'd never heard about them before. No, I haven't heard of them. Part of me is like, they did a really good job of seeking out anonymity as adults because they were huge in the 30s and 40s. And by the time we were born, they were not talked about at all. No. They did a good job of saying we don't want to be known. And then, like, like they didn't cash in their fame as adults at all. And they could have. And they were like, we don't want that. So, like, if there's anything good about this story, it's that they were able in the end to sort of 
gain a little bit of control over their own destinies and not be constantly controlled by the public eye their entire lives. So do we do we know do they still live in Canada? They do. Yeah. They live in Canada. They live together. But oh no, not anymore. I think one of them is in a nursing facility now. But they did live together until recently, I believe. They loved one another very much and they took care of one another and they had each other. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, well they had no one else to take care of them. You know, oh my God. So a little bit upsetting, but definitely a their parents did what? <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. Holy moly. So yeah. So that's it. That's the Dion Quintuplets. That was really truly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Whew. <laughs> oh, I I forgot about this. This story just never ends. There's a museum for them. <laughs> no, they don't want that. I don't know if it exists anymore, but the one of their siblings opened their home as a museum. I think it's probably been turned into a different thing now, but but there was a museum for a while. Oh, God. Oh, as of October kids. 2016, the museum closed. 2016? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Goodness. Just the worst. I mean, if you want to know more about them, there's no end <laughs> to information about these children. Oh, man. It's just crazy. It's just crazy. Anyway, so that's it. That's it. That's all I have to say about them. Wow. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It was really, really, I mean, sad, but interesting and makes you think. It was good. Yep. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned in there. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. If you have any interesting stories specifically if you have any interesting stories about being from you know if you're one of multiples and you have some interesting stories about growing up as a as a twin or a triplet or a quadruplet or a quintuplet anything <laughs> and you have interesting stories about you know what what that was like and how parenting may have been different for you than for other kids We'd be happy to hear those stories, um, unless they're really heartbreaking, in which case you do not have to share them with us. No, you do not. <laughs> those are your stories. Keep to yourself if you want. But if you have some really interesting little nugget that you want to share, let us know. So you can send us an email at opdwpodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at opdwpodcast. And we have a Facebook page with lots of fun posts and where we like to talk to our listeners and hang out and try to fill your lives with little tiny bits of absolute horror and joy. A little of both. Yeah, a little we both. Like to, we like to switch it up. Yeah, sweet and salty. <laughs> uh, and our music it w was done by Theo Rosenberg, so thank you, Theo. Thanks, Theo. Until next time. Rocks from Ontario should not be relied upon as a fertility treatment.